All right, will you please open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, over the uh, past couple of weeks, many of you have asked about the revival at Asbury University, a uh, spontaneous, student-led, prayer-driven movement that has been spreading to college campuses and churches all over the nation. It's been all over the internet, the news. I think even uh, Tucker Carlson from Fox News did a segment on it. You can watch that online if you want. Well, this morning, we're going to break from 1 Timothy and consider what Scripture has to say about how we should respond to not only what's happening at Asbury, but more importantly, I think, what and how we should think about revival in our own lives and our church here in Petersburg. So let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Lord, we ask Your Holy Spirit uh, to come now and to take this text of Scripture. Let it be the focal point of this message. This is not about the opinion of one man or one church or one school or whatever. I pray, Lord, that you will show us what we need here in our lives, our church, our community in Petersburg, West Virginia. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, on Wednesday, February the 8th, uh, just a few weeks ago, at the end of an otherwise very ordinary chapel service at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, after the chapel speaker taught from Romans 12 on the preeminence of love in the Christian life, one student stood up and began to publicly confess his sins. And the rest is, it's really history, isn't it? I mean, can I ask you, if you've heard of the Asbury Revival, or if you've heard something, maybe, will you, will you just raise your hand? That's, that's, I'm not a statistician, but that's probably most of us. Well, that chapel service continued uninterrupted for, I guess, about two weeks. And over 50,000 visitors from the United States and all over the world have flooded the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, which is not all that bigger than Petersburg, 
to see and experience for themselves what many are calling the Asbury Revival or the Asbury Outpouring. But the church in America is deeply divided over what's happening at Asbury. Or what was happening at Asbury, I guess I should say, since the public prayer and worship services have now stopped. But on one side, there are those who unquestionably accept and affirm this revival as a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. Maybe even the fulfillment of a prophecy made by charismatic pastor Dutch Sheets over two decades ago. On the other side are those who have been immediately critical and who have rejected outright this thing in Asbury as a false revival for one reason or another. You know, maybe the gospel wasn't presented clearly enough, or, or maybe some well-known false teacher showed up and endorsed it. Or maybe they just think it's excessive emotionalism. But church, I want to encourage us, Bethel Church, to not be on either of those sides. To not be undiscerningly open, but also don't be immediately critical. <laughs> Instead, I want to encourage us to be hopeful, but with discernment. Because revival is a tricky thing, isn't it? It's a tricky thing. I mean, we have what we call revival here at Bethel over the course of several services each year, as is the custom of many churches, but is that really revival? You see, there isn't even any real consensus in the church today as to how to even define revival. We don't even know what that word means. In seminary, I took a class called Principles of Spiritual Awakening. It was one of my favorite classes. A whole semester on the subject of revival. And in the opening lecture, our professor gave us no less than nine definitions of revival. I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? That almost sounds like how we define a woman today, isn't it? <laughs> but you know what? There's great wisdom in that, in, in what my professor did. Because it acknowledges that it is difficult to define revival. That however we define it, true revival, we can say this, true revival is a sovereign move of God and He sends it however, whenever, and wherever He chooses to. That's what He does. True revival cannot be started by man, it cannot be sustained by man, and it certainly cannot be stopped by man. Yes, let's acknowledge this at least. Some claims of revival are false. 
or at, at best, over-exaggerated. But friends, some are not false. <laughs> They're not. God does sometimes send the real thing. So my hope this morning is to show us, or that God would show us, myself included, that we should discerningly welcome whatever God might sovereignly choose to, to do among His people. You know, that's, that's the big takeaway from this message. So I'll say it again. We should discerningly welcome whatever God might sovereignly do among us. And all throughout this, I, I want your mind to not be in Asbury or in wherever else. I want your mind to be right here in Bethel Church in Petersburg. Because we don't live in Wilmore, Kentucky. <laughs> we live here. So we should then discerningly welcome whatever God might sovereignly do among us. That's what we're concerned about. And I want to give us three cautions. Three cautions from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that I pray, that I hope, that I trust will help us to that end. And the first is to understand that the Christian life is characterized by the ordinary. So let's not chase the spectacular. Do you understand what I mean by that? The Christian life is characterized by the ordinary, so let's not chase the spectacular, the fireworks. Look at me with ver uh, verses 16 to 18, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, he's at the end of his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. You know he wrote two letters, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And as he often does, Paul closes with some very practical applications of the gospel in everyday life. And here, he gives us three graces that characterize the Christian life. Joy, prayer, and gratitude. Joy, prayer, and gratitude. And notice that there is an ongoing quality to all three. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right? Now, now this doesn't mean, you know this, this doesn't mean that we have to pray 24-7 or glue a smile to our face and be happy and thankful for, you know, a $3,000 transmission job that we have to get done on our car. I hope I didn't just jinx myself there. <laughs> Lord have mercy. No. Paul means that joy, prayer, and gratitude should consistently characterize our lives. That's why he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
We search the Bible. For, we, we, we worry about what's the will of God. And who am I, where am I supposed to go to college? Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to do? Well, here's what God wants you to do. Rejoice, pray, and be thankful. That is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Go find yourself a job, a wife, or a husband, and do all this. All of these graces, are we, you know what, we could actually call them disciplines. We maybe should call them disciplines because sometimes it's not so easy to rejoice or give thanks or to pray. But these, these, these graces that characterize the Christian life, you know, they're kind of ordinary, aren't they? There's no secret, you know, to happiness hiding behind them. They're just ordinary. There's nothing flashy about them. And how often are we just not content to live the ordinary Christian life so we go chasing the spectacular? And may I suggest, brothers and sisters, by way of caution, that this is why whenever there's tale of a revival somewhere, like at Asbury, Christians just start flocking to it. And listen, I am guilty of this too. On Father's Day 1995, a revival broke out at Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida. It lasted for five years. I went twice. Twice. And this was as a... I was a poor college kid. I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I don't even think I had a job. I think one time my wife and I, well, she was, we were dating then at the time, but she, she paid the way. She always worked. Um, now I'm, I'm kind of returning the favor on that, you know. Um, I think the second time her mom went with us. I can't remember. That's so long ago. I went twice. Once as a critical skeptic. And the second time I went as a believer. That yes, though there were excesses. Uh, I think one of those times, some uh, one of the guys hit one of the pastors there. He took his Bible and hit my Bible. Hit, hit, he hit my wife over the... Again, she wasn't my wife at the time. He hit her, my girlfriend over the head and said, Fire! Maybe that's what's wrong with her. <laughs> she got hit with the sword of the Spirit. His name was Michael Brown. You may have heard of him. Dr. Michael Brown. He was, he's, he's actually a very solid theologian, I think, mostly. Once I went as a skeptic, the second time I went as a believer. There were excesses, but I genuinely believe that this was a, a real move of God. Now, friends, please don't throw me out of the church for saying that. I told you I used to be church of God. And, friends, there is still a Pentecostal impulse in me 
that I frequently have to keep in check. You know, this is why, listen, y'all, <laughs> this is why the girls on the, praise, uh, on the praise team get aggravated with me. Because we never do the songs like we practice. I mean, we might do the chorus one time or six times or redo one verse, and who knows? Who knows? Until the Spirit moves us on Sunday morning. Well, here's my point. We, we, we cannot chase the spectacular. And this is one of the biggest concerns with the modern charismatic movement. They think that we should live in spectacular signs and wonders and, and miracles all the time. But God has never promised us that kind of nonstop supernaturalism in Scripture. He hasn't promised us that. Yes, there are special outpourings of His presence, but they are uncommon. You see, that's what makes them special. But we have to live day to day in the ordinary, in the joy, in the prayer, in the gratitude that defines the Christian life. That's where we'll find God's abiding presence. David Jeremiah says this, the best way to be assured of God's presence is to be in His presence daily through prayer, Bible study, and worship. Friends, that is the ordinary Christian, the unspectacular Christian life. That's where we live. I put, you know, I like, you figured this out about me by now. I like to go out and hike and stuff and do. But I'll tell you what. The hikes that people go on are mostly uphill, mud, water, dirt. And you go there to see something at the top or whatever your objective is. See, the majority, just like the majority of a hike is hard work, the majority of the Christian life is hard work, but occasionally you'll get to the top and you'll get to experience something that is uncommon, is unusual, it is spectacular. And that, friends, is revival. but the majority of what we do as Christians is very ordinary, very unspectacular. The second caution that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is actually the reverse of the first one. <laughs> and it is that God does move through unusual and extraordinary means. So let's be careful how we judge. God does move in strange ways. So let's be careful before we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says to the church there, Do not quench the Spirit. 
do not despise prophecies. So evidently, there was a tendency in the Thessalonian church to be overly critical of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe, listen, maybe they had heard of the charismatic sensationalism that was going on down at Corinth. And if you don't have any idea of what I'm talking about, go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. That church was out of control. So maybe Thessalonica had heard about what was happening down there, but now they were at risk of overcorrecting to the opposite extreme and shutting out all of the work of the Holy Spirit. You see? Maybe there were some in the Thessalonian church who we might call the frozen chosen. Where, you know, any manifestation of the Spirit was looked at with skepticism. Any expressiveness in worship was criticized as emotionalism. Do you know anyone like that? Are you like that? Am I like that? Do you look at skepticism on those who are, who are more expressive in worship than you? Friends, again, I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm so guilty of this. Because I know that there is a lot of emotionalism in the church today. You know that. There's a lot of revivalistic manipulation masquerading as true revival. A lot of songs and sermons that lack substance. But let's be careful how we judge. Because God does occasionally move in unusual and extraordinary ways that do not easily fit into our neat little theological boxes. You understand what I'm saying? Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor of the Northampton Church in Massachusetts, who is widely regarded across the board as the greatest theological mind to ever be born on American soil. Listen to him describe the unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Northampton from 1740 to 1742 during what we call the First Great Awakening. He writes, The months of August and September were the most remarkable of any this year for the appearances of conviction and conversion of sinners and great revivings, quickenings, comforts for professors of Christ and for extraordinary external effects of these things. He says, It was very frequent to see a house full of outcries, faintings, convulsions, and such both with distress and also with admiration and joy. It was not the manner here in Northampton, he says, to hold meetings all night, as in some places. Nor was it common to continue them till very late in the night, 
but it was pretty often so that there were some that were so affected and their bodies so overcome that they could not go home, but were obliged to stay all night where they were. So here's, here's his point. Here's what we learned from his description there. When the divine collides with the human, strange things happen to us. Did you hear what I said? When the divine collides with the human, the undivine, strange things happen to us. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples, just two. I mean, you can think about the resurrection when, when you know, uh, anytime people see angels in the Bible, they usually like either fall down dead or they respond in some bizarre way. Listen, when Moses saw God's glory, what happened to his face? It lit up so bright that he had to wear a veil so that the people could even look at him. When Solomon, in 2 Chronicles 7, when he finished building the temple, and he brought in the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, you remember the story. The Bible says that the cloud of God's glory descended and was so heavy that the Bible says the priest couldn't even stand to minister. And yet we get nervous when someone gets a little expressive in church because, well, that's just emotionalism. No. It's just people not knowing how to react <laughs> when the tangible presence of the Lord passes by. Friends, do not quench the Spirit. I've been all over the spectrum. I've been Baptist. I've been Free Will Baptist. I've been Church of God. I've, I've done it. I've been Reformed, Calvinist. All I've been it all. But the Bible still tells us, do not quench the Spirit. But, but, and that is a big but. I don't think that came out right the way I wanted it to, brother. What am I trying to say? There's an exception. A big exception. But we must be discerning. We must, we must be discerning. And so we come to our third and final caution this morning.
that not everything that looks like a move of God is a move of God. So let's discern wisely. Not everything that looks like a move of God is a move of God. So let's discern wisely. Verse 21, Paul says, But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Friends, this is what we need to do with Asbury. It's not my place, it's not your place to authoritatively declare it genuine or false or somewhere in between, but it is our place to test everything. After the revival at Northampton, Massachusetts had abated a little, it, you know, as revivals do, they come, they go, they're like the tide. Jonathan Edwards was gone from his church for about two weeks. In 1742, in February of 1742, during which time a visiting preacher came and labored in his absence. And when Edwards got home, he said this. This is what he said. This is February 1742. When I came home, I found the town in extraordinary circumstances. This is every pastor's worst nightmare. He goes on vacation, he goes there, and he comes back and his church is wild. Right? I came home, I found the town in extraordinary circumstances, such as in some respects I never saw it before. Many in their religious affections being raised far beyond what they had ever been before. And Listen, there were some instances of persons lying in a sort of trance. Remaining perhaps for a whole 24 hours motionless. What? Edward says, I came home and I found people just lying in a trance for up to 24 hours. They were motionless. He says, but in the meantime, they were under strong imaginations as though they had went to heaven and had there a vision of glorious and delightful objects. But when people were raised to this height, friends, get this right here. This is the most important part of this message. Edwards is not... He's not decrying what, what, what was happening. He's not sitting there in, in, in some sort of like frozen, chosen... Pres- you know, I don't, I don't want to... Anyway. He's not looking at those people and saying, well, that's just emotionalism. He looks at him and he says, okay, you're out for 24 hours. He says, when the people were raised to this height, Satan took the advantage. And his interference soon became very apparent. And a great deal of caution, pastoral caution, and pains were found necessary to keep the people from running wild.
So when things get wild, Edwards says, and they will, in any kind of revival, they're going to get wild. Edwards says there has to be some sort of shepherding of that, some sort of stewarding of the revival to keep people from just going wild. You see, friends, in every authentic move of God, there is a temptation, there is a tendency toward excess. So we have to test everything and keep what we can and leave out all the rest. You know how to do this very well because anytime you go to a restaurant and you get a plate of food and there are some things that are good and great and you just enjoy it, some things are not so good, you leave them on the plate. And the best way for us as a church to do this is to filter everything through Jesus Christ. I really miss Brother Paul this morning. I don't even know if he would agree with anything I'm saying. Any true work of the Holy Spirit will always point to Christ. In John 6, I didn't make that up. Jesus said that himself. John 16, 14, he says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, if the person and work of Jesus Christ is not the center focus of whatever is going on, whether the praise, the preaching, or the prayers, then we need to be suspicious of it. If there's a clear and obvious emphasis on things that draw the focus away from Jesus Christ, then we need to stay away from it. If it is genuine, Christ will be center stage. Spotlight will be on Jesus. It has to be. We could go on for hours about the subject of revival. What it is, what it's not. What marks are genuine, what marks are false. But I want to say this morning, this is where we're going to bring all this to a pinpoint, hopefully. Friends, our culture is never going to get turned around without revival. We are so far down the slippery slope of depravity in America that unless, <laughs> unless God sends a mighty, an unusual, unless He sends a sudden awakening, our nation is finished in the future of the coming generations. Friends, it's dark. We are in a mess in America that we're not getting out of without revival. And we're busy wanting to, 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 to nitpick what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky as the church. I read an article from, from a, a respected ministry this past week that said, you know, the church in America today shouldn't even really be praying for revival. I unsubscribe from their email list. What do you mean we shouldn't be praying for a revival? 
We ain't getting out of this without it. Friends, we're not. I'm going to be in jail one day or dead in the grave without revival. You hear me? You will face the same fate if you stand for Jesus Christ. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. It ain't getting any better without revival. Maybe this is it. Maybe Asbury is the beginning of something greater. Oh God, I, I pray so. Friends, I am so desperate this morning. My soul is dry. It is parched. I am thirsty for a move of God. What about you? What about you? Are you thirsty this morning? Are you empty? Have the pressures and stresses of life in this fallen and complicated world left you just exhausted and empty? The bad news every day. The suffering we see all around us is everywhere. The unfulfilled dreams that have left us with broken hearts. The war that we face with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The unrelenting lure and temptations of sin. Friends, I feel like I'm walking in a minefield every day of my life. Spiritually. Does anybody want to get this nasty honest this morning? Do you feel like that? Men? Any men in here feel like that? You're walking in a minefield every day. And you're just spent. Or maybe, and here's, here's the worst danger. Maybe you're, maybe you're apathetic. Maybe all this has just left you apathetic. It has sucked so much life out of you. The world, the news, the temptation, the struggles of every day, working, eating, going to bed, fighting for everything you get. It wears you out. It's just left you apathetic. Maybe you don't feel a thing. Or maybe you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus at all. Not everybody in this building is a born-again Christian. You all know that. Maybe the majority of us. But week to week, we get people we don't know. 
Jesus said, on the last day there will be those who said, have we not done this in your name? We've done all these great miracles in your name. We've, we've, we've looked the part. But he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, that terrifies me. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus at all, and I mean, I'm saying you, you don't know you, you don't know for sure. I mean, you may have done this or that when you were little. You may have prayed a prayer or something, but you know what? You didn't really nothing ever. No, no. If you've never just ran from yourself and your own righteousness and your sinfulness and and flung yourself on Jesus Christ, friends, if if that's the case. If you've never done that, you're going to hell when you die. You're going to spend eternity there under the wrath of a holy God. I know that's a really crappy thing to hear. But it's just the way it is. And I hope I didn't get in trouble by saying, listen, I... Oh, this is not, oh, this is unscripted here. Jesus is the only way out of hell. <laughs> and you can't get out of it <laughs> once you get there. In fact, He's the only way out of any of this. So friends, if anything I have said this morning has resonated with you in any way at all, if you have felt God the Holy Spirit tug upon your heart, I want you, will you do this? Will you get out of your seat right now and come down here and join me around the altar? We're not going to sing. We're not going to do anything but just in desperate faith cry out for God to do something unusual here among us at Bethel. We're going to pray. Will you come? Will you come?